0: The most challenging thing in effective computing is data, because our algorithms work based on AI, and an AI can only be as good as the data provided. In effective computing, we do not have many data sets because they are very difficult to produce. You need to bring a person in a dedicated emotional state and then measure the physiological signals a video, maybe a eye tracking, and then afterwards label all this data and give it a certain emotion, which is again difficult. That's why the number of data is very limited, especially with good labels. And that is the most challenging thing in our research.
1: Welcome to Afflat Silica's We Talk IoT. We'll chat with innovators, experts and business owners to learn how they are implementing IoT and using data to create new business opportunities. I am your host, Stephanie Ruth-Hader. With the rapid growth of IoT devices around us, imagine if our gadgets could not only process information, but also understand and respond to our emotions. Today's special guest is Nina Holzer, and she is a researcher from the renowned Fraunhofer Institute for Integrated Circuits, IIS, and the team lead for multimodal human sensing. Together, we will explore the fascinating intersection of human emotions, artificial intelligence, and the future of human-computer interaction. So tune in as we delve deep into the heartbeats of our machine. Nina, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show. How are you? Thank you. I'm good today. Would you like to get us started by introducing yourself and uh, what you do at the Fraunhofer IIS?
0: Thanks for inviting me. I'm Nina Holzer and I'm working at the Fraunhofer IIS and in the field of Effective Computing. In the past I studied computer science and started working at Fraunhofer IIS and since two years I'm heading the group of Multimodal Human Sensing, where we try to encode emotions with technical systems, which is a yeah, field
1: of effective computing. And could you briefly explain what effective computing is? It's spelled with an A, not an E, <laughs> yes. and why is it important in today's technological landscape?
0: So, in general, effective computing is a a combination of the disciplines psychology, physiology, and computer science, AI in particular. In this field, we try to capture reactions in physiology and behavior to a certain situation, and Mm -hmm. then draw conclusions through emotions or emotional states.
1: Okay. How do you capture and interpret such complex things like emotions? I would imagine that's a very subjective thing. Like maybe when you look at my face, you would think I look very happy and relaxed, but maybe I'm a little bit nervous and impressed. How do you teach a machine how to interpret human emotions?
0: Actually, capturing emotions with technical solutions is very challenging. Emotions themselves show in different levels. So we divide emotions in the following levels. So we have the behavior level that you described. So we have gestures. We have facial expressions. This is what we can easily see also by a human. Then we mm-hmm. have a physiological level, which can be a heartbeat or a skin conductance or mm-hmm. also like brain waves. You can easily understand when you have a big excitement, your heartbeat will go faster. Yeah. And so different physiological signals correspond to emotions.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Then we have the subjective experience of an emotion. Mm-hmm. This is how pleasant or unpleasant does the person really feel. And of mm-hmm. course, this is difficult to, to uh, capture with a technical system. But we need this information for our AI training and find the corresponding physiological signals and behavior
1: signals for the emotion that the person is feeling. That's really interesting. And I think the question that comes to mind next is, what would be some possible applications where you would need this kind of research and the data that you are collecting?
0: There are different applications for effective computing one mm-hmm. examples are autonomous cars. So autonomous cars will have different information from the environment that might not have the person in the car. So it is very important that the autonomous cars adapt the driving behavior due to the feeling. Let's assume the an example in a fog. So the car will have information from the environment from a lighter, from a radar, and knows that even though the passenger in the car can see anything around due to the fog, Mm
1: -hmm. the
0: car can overtake another car safe because it has enough environmental information.
1: I suppose the human emotion would then be kind of closing my eyes and hoping it will work uh, and… Having a really high heartbeat.
0: (laughs) Having a really high heartbeat. And you really feel uncomfortable if the car starts to overtake. (laughs) And so you won't trust your car. That is a good idea to overtake in this situation. So then this autonomous car needs to react on the emotion of the person Mm -hmm. because this will lead to trust
1: in autonomous vehicles in the future. Oh, interesting. Okay. It's not that the car would say, like, don't be a chicken, I know what I'm doing, trust me, and then hitting the the gas pedal.
0: (laughs) Could be also an option, but (laughs) the question is if this is the best idea or a better idea. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe not. To drive slower or to give information, okay, you are safe because I know the following uh, things from our environment Mm. and you are safe in my car because of what I know.
1: Don't worry, little human. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know more. I know what I do. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. So it's about building trust in the example for autonomous driving. That's interesting. Okay. But also
0: building Mm -hmm. trust in other technical solutions. So Mm -hmm. if you think of robots or any human machine interaction, it is always a good idea that the communication partner can respond to your feelings. When we talk to each other, I would say it's a good communication when you respond to how I feel or you think I feel and I respond back to okay. when you get angry, I will uh, I will react different from when you look happy what I am saying. yeah, That is what enables effective computing to interaction between human and machines. Mm-hmm. This can be a robot. There's also a um, good example that I can give. Let's assume a service robot. Driving mm-hmm. around, bringing things to you,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and from the technical point of view, this robot is able to drive very fast to you and then <laughs> stop right in front of you. <laughs> Technically, it's
1: possible. <laughs> okay, but Might what be you a feel good, bit threatening? Right? Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. But when you interact with such a robot, the first time the robot should see, okay, who is not feeling very well mm. when I drive mm. so fast, so I come closer slowly. But the next time you get more trust in this system and it can rise to get faster and faster to to you. So it's again about building trust, getting your reaction, your emotion, and then adapt to this and interact different in the future when you, you get more trust in the systems.
1: Very interesting. Are there any other use cases? Like we had automotive, we had service Robots, I suppose that they would also make sense in a healthcare or ambient assisted living environment?
0: Yes, that's also applications where wherever we will have robots in the future
1: mm-hmm.
0: for assistance, with elder, working with elderly people, talking to elderly people. But there's also a very different use case, which is mm-hmm. not directly corresponding to this human-machine interaction, for example, market research and neural marketing. So with effective computing, we are able to measure reactions when you interact with a product. So you can mm-hmm. directly measure how good your product is and how much the
1: person likes your product or your commercial or a movie. I think... Um I might have seen something like this at your CBIT exhibition stand from probably a couple of years ago when there was still a CBIT. I think you had like a mirror where you could uh, stand in front and then the mirror would tell you, could distinguish back then, I think it must have been seriously at least 10 or 15 years ago. Are you a female? Are you male? How old are you? Are you happy at the moment? So that's basically when I look at a product, and then the sensors will be able to tell: Am I excited by this? Am I completely bored and not interested? And then you have like data, like okay, this target group, which we thought would be thrilled, is actually completely unimpressed. Right? Is that the something that would describe it?
0: Right. You're talking about our software library, sure. Mm. This is a completely uh, video-based solution.
1: Oh, okay. So. Mm-hmm.
0: This is already 16 years ago, so we are one of the very first players in the effective computing market with this wow. software library, and it further and further developed. We are able mm. to measure emotions in the face based on the facial reactions with mm-hmm. this software library that can be licensed. But there are emotions which are not very easy to, to read from only mm-hmm. the face. Okay. So that's why we we further developed our uh, working environment also to the
1: biosignals and physiological reactions. And um, in your experience, what have been the most challenging aspects? Are there any specific emotions that are particularly hard to decode?
0: Yeah, I would say the most challenging thing in effective computing is data. Okay. Because our algorithms work based on AI, Mm
1: -hmm. and an
0: AI can only be as good as the data you provided. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so when you think of other um, applications like a very simple one, decide, do I see a dog or a cat in a picture? You will have thousands and millions of pictures Mm -hmm. that are easy to get and easy to label, so tell the AI this is a dog or a cat. In effective computing, we do not have many data sets okay. because they are very difficult to produce. You need to bring a person in a dedicated emotional state and <laughs> then measure the physiological signals, mm-hmm. the a video, maybe a eye tracking, and then afterwards label all this data and give it a certain emotion, which is again difficult.
1: Okay, wow. mm,
0: That's why the number of data is very limited, Mm -hmm. especially with good labels. And that is the most challenging thing in our uh, area of research.
1: We will take a short break. Stay with us. We will be hearing from our guests very shortly. This podcast is brought to you by AFNET Silica the engineers of evolution. We help you bring secure, intelligent and connected products to market. If you want to learn more about us, we have put information and links in this episode's show notes. And you can also connect with us on LinkedIn or afnet-silica.com. That's A-V-N-E-T-S-I-L-I-C-A.com. I would also imagine that there are cultural differences as well, like maybe, for example, in a Western society, happiness has a different, well, of course, physiologically it might be the same, but from the facial expressions, maybe an Asian, an African or a South American person might have a different facial expression, right?
0: Yes, that might be uh, as well. But here you you again cross another big problem of our <laughs> data sets <laughs> yeah. because when you think, of oh, normally you need a very balanced data set to mm-hmm. get the perfect uh, result mm-hmm. and to decode the emotion. So that means, balanced data set in this case means that I have the same amount of black people, of white people, of mm-hmm. maybe Asian people. Women, men, children, old people. So, And mm-hmm. now you could imagine how big this data set must be to really have it balanced. So okay. that's also a big challenge.
1: Having an unbalanced data set would probably lead to biases, right? That um, the the machine or the algorithm would interpret, no, it's completely fine when uh, th- the result is based on maybe, I don't know, a white male, but uh, would not consider the fact that someone else has a different reaction to the same setting, right? So how do you do this? Do you ask people to volunteer and come to your laboratory and put lots of sensors on them and then collect data or how do you solve this problem?
0: (laughs) This is exactly what we do. We uh, have the studies here, we have, we call it our emotion AI box the people come here we bring them in a special uh, emotional state there are different techniques to do the, this one technique is to show defined pictures or show defined part of parts of videos that will bring you to an emotion there are mm-hmm. other ways but these are two popular ways and then we we put all the electrodes and sensors and cameras to the persons and then we we measure the reactions Um, and collect the data. Mm -hmm. But still, we cannot balance the data set 100%. Mm. And so we are also working in one part of our research on bias research, where we check how we can overcome this problem at least a bit to balance Mm. the data set. So if we only have one black person that we try to train better with this this person more than with the others. And there are different techniques to do so. But that is one of our research uh, things that we do in effective computing.
1: And um, once these applications come to life, are there any ethical considerations that probably pop up then um, with the power to sense and potentially also, I guess, influence human emotions?
0: Of course, you have a lot of ethical point that you have to consider Mm. everyone in the field of fact computing works with high sensitive data. Mm -hmm. You have biosignals that gives you the possibility to draw conclusions to the health status of a person. And then you record at the same time videos, which means those data are not anonym anymore.
1: All right. This is a big problem.
0: So we... At Fraunhofer, only store those data internally on our servers. That's one point that we do. But all companies and research institutes have a very big responsibility for this. And for the future, there's the, from the European Union, the EU AI Act, which regulates what you are allowed to do with AI and what you have to document, and how you have to take care of your data. And in in this UAI Act, one part is also the emotion recognition systems. So it will be very restricted about transparency and what you are allowed to do, which is very good. And this Mm -hmm. gives
1: transparency to the public. I suppose that's the essential and most crucial point for all artificial intelligence applications that it's always really clear is the the creator of this a human or an artificial intelligence and transparency I think is yeah probably the most important part in uh, adopting and developing this technology further, right? Yeah, yes, mm. completely right. So, you mentioned other research companies. Are there any academic or industrial collaborations that have been influential in advancing your research?
0: Yeah, as Brownhofer Institute, we work on research and industrial projects in mm-hmm. different fields of a- applications. In the beginning, I said we have here with effective computing the combination of psychology, of physiology, and We also cross the border of medicine with our measurement tools. And so there is not one company or one university that is most important for us, but we try to check what partners do we need Mm -hmm. to solve a certain problem. So we always work together with different companies um, in automotive or market research to solve the problem and then also maybe get a psychologist within the projects to complete our know-how to solve the problem, which is always very complex when we
1: talk about emotions. Hmm. <laughs> is there a public case study you are able to talk about, or are you still in a, in a research phase where you uh, where you cannot share too much information?
0: Yeah, at the moment I cannot talk about a <laughs> <It's> certain <okay. laughs> industry project. Yeah. But we have uh, we did a research project. It was finished a year ago. And there we were researching on cognitive load. And we did a big study with persons, bringing them into
1: cognitive load. What is a cognitive load? I'm sorry.
0: It, we We looked at cognitive load... On mental load, like when your brain is overloaded from the tasks oh, okay. you are doing. Okay. This can be, for example, we, we did it in two steps. In the t- first step, we had some very challenging mental mm. things to solve. Mm-hmm. And in the next step, we had driving situations in our driving simulator that cool. were very challenging to solve because you had to do so many multitasking things. And... Out of that, we got an, a data set for this co- mental cognitive overload, mm-hmm. which is uh, public and can be used also by other researchers.
1: Oh, that'd be interesting if you share the link with me. I can maybe put it in the show notes for our listeners to uh, yeah, have a have a look. I will be happy to share the link. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be interesting. I suppose... That would be also a really interesting use case, for example, if you are looking for employees, let's say it's either truck drivers or policemen or pilots, people or yeah, people in stressful situation who have to react to a lot of influences. I suppose you could, would it be a use case to use this solution to yeah basically test your possible new employees if they are up to the task?
0: That would be one
1: uh, thing to test employees, mm.
0: but also in the real application. In the end, while driving, you could monitor mm. the person and react to to the overload.
1: Okay. Or, for
0: example, you could also think of gaming when someone is playing a computer game, and then mm. you uh, you can monitor with this system in the end if if the person is overloaded, and you should. Make the game easier, or maybe the person gets it gets bored and it is not doesn't have yeah. to think too much at the moment. So you can make the the game harder. This is also an application for mental
1: uh, mental load. Oh, very interesting. I had that ex- experience personally myself when I was playing a, a video game called The Last of Us, and I thought it was so immersive that I was actually really anxious and scared and uh, hiding behind the couch trying to solve the puzzles because I found it so immersive that I thought I was I was being the person. I found it, it was really good, but it was really stressful. I had to take a break and step back and say, I need a glass of water and then we can continue. Yeah. So maybe the system
0: would have said, okay, Ruth, I will give you an easier level now and then we go on.
1: Yeah, Maybe you should dial down the difficulty and uh, turn on the lights in your apartment. Yeah. Yeah, that would would have been very helpful. Um, Where do you see the future of effective computing and IoT heading in the next five to ten years? Are there any breakthroughs uh, on the horizon that uh, I should be looking out for?
0: Oh, I mean, it's hard to say how it will uh, develop in the next ten years, but I'm very convinced that effective computing and parts of effective computing will be integrated in many human-machine interaction. It will be running in the background so that you you don't feel that effective computing is applied, but you will you will have a better communication with the system. And I'm very sure that we will have it in autonomous cars and also interaction with robots Mm -hmm. or any other human-machine interaction.
1: And that that would be also an interesting question to see. Has working in this field changed your perspective on the relationship between humans and machines?
0: Before I started to work Mm -hmm. intensively in the field of effective computing, I was interested in and curious what robots can do and cannot do. <laughs> but today, when I started to, when I got a deep look into it and work with it very close to the newest uh, developments, I get very excited and enthusiastic about what will come in the future. I'm really much looking forward how those algorithms will make our life easier and better in the future.
1: Mm. What would you say is a common myth about human-machine interaction or about effective computing? When people ask me
0: what I do, especially people who are not very technique enthusiasts, <laughs> they say, oh, that's very scary what you are doing and what will happen with us. Mm-hmm. But in my opinion, this is due to the imagination and there will be robots who will run around in the world completely auton- autonomous getting own feelings own thoughts and um, do something what they want to do and then I always can say no f- robots are only as good as we train them they don't have they are not able to Detect a hundred percent of your feelings, or to adapt to a hundred percent of your feelings, they are only as good as we taught them to be. That is a common myth that I always hear, uh, that I often hear from friends who are not from the
1: technical mm. point of view. Yeah, <laughs> I imagine. Have you watched uh, the TV show Battlestar Galactica? No. I don't know it. Um, It it used to run in the 70s. It used to be really, really, really old. But they did a rerun in, uh, I think, 2006 with a a new cast and a new story. And I think you should probably find the storyline interesting. Humans developed service robots, which, of course, at one point, uh, developed a mind of their own and started to um, uh, revolt against their makers. And then there was a big war between machines and humans, 50 years after the peace treaty, everything is quiet, they have not been seen for like a, a couple of hundred years, and then they return, but now they look human, they have evolved, and now you don't know who's a machine and who's a human. It's a really cool TV show, if, you are, if you're interested. So. yeah and
0: in such TV shows and movies <laughs> they bring to the mind of the public that something like that could really happen.
1: <laughs> yeah so that's and, very counterproductive than what I said sorry <laughs> uh, no uh,
0: but but that uh, it's not counterproductive it's just yeah. it, it shows why people think that ma- why ma- machines mm. might be able to do it or mm. to have an own mind. But that's something I would always say, no, they are only as good as we trained them to be.
1: That sounds very comforting. Uh, Thank you so much, Nina, for being on the show. It has been terrific to learn about the new possibilities that will be on the horizon. And thank you for giving us an insight on the research you do. It has been really interesting.
0: Thank you so much for having me as a guest.
1: This was Avnet Silica's We Talk IoT. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating. Talk to you soon.